Hi, and welcome to Wealthy Woman Lawyer Podcast. I'm your host, Davina Frederick, founder and CEO of Wealthy Woman Lawyer. Wealthy Woman Lawyer is a company that helps women law firm owners scale their law firm businesses from six to seven figures in gross annual revenue. We do that by sharing with you our nine-step framework for creating a profitable, sustainable, wealth-generating law firm business, and by guiding you through the process every step of the way. Learn more by visiting www.wealthywomanlawyer.com, by following us on Instagram at Wealthy Woman Lawyer, or by joining our free Facebook group. Today, I want to introduce our sponsor, Noble Marketing. Over the last four years, Noble Marketing has tracked more than 250 law firms and discovered 60 to 80% of new client calls were generated through Google My Business and Google Ads. Basically, you need to be on Google and Noble Marketing can help. I recommend them because they have an incredible guarantee. Your campaign will be profitable in three months or less, or they will work for free for an additional three months. If they fail after a total of six months, they'll refund your entire investment, including ad spend. If you use more qualified leads, I encourage you to reach out to Ronnie Beaver at noblemarketing.co. Mention you heard about them here on the Wealth Woman Lawyer Podcast, and Noble Marketing will waive your setup fee instantly saving you up to $2,500 or more. And now, on with our show. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Wealthy Woman Lawyer Podcast. I'm your host, Davina Frederick, and I'm here today with Amanda Dubois. Amanda is the founder of the Dubois Law Group, and that's a a divorce uh, law firm in California. No, in Seattle. You're in the Seattle area. I apologize. I saw California. Um, and her law firm has 20 employees. It is, uh, largely women attorneys and she, Amanda is really fascinating because I found out about her because I found out that she is an attorney who has written a novel, a legal novel and legal thriller. And so I am reading that it's called the complication and I invited her onto the show and I found out that she has built this amazing law firm over the last 20 years in the Seattle area. And before that, she was actually a nurse. And she recently won a very prestigious award for her work, her nonprofit work on something called the Civil Survival Project. So I'm eager to talk with her about that. I know you guys are going to love her and love to hear all about Amanda and her law firm. I've got lots of questions. So welcome, Amanda. I'm so glad you're here. Thank you. It's so fun to be here. So why don't you start out telling us uh, about your law firm and kind of give us a sense of the size of it, who you like to serve, the clients you like to serve, um, and your team. Well, I have an update newsflash. We have a new name because uh, Lucia Levias just became a full partner in the law firm. And so now it's called Dubois Levias Law Groups. So that's pretty exciting. Wonderful. And what we're really excited about is that she represents, um, I think it's 2% of women law partners who are Latina, which is a statistic I wasn't aware of. So I'm pretty proud of that. Yes. Um, I know, right? So we're moving, we have a pretty diverse group in our in our law firm and Lucia is now a partner. So that's, or she's a named partner. She was a partner before. We have about, now we've got about 25 employees. We have, I think, nine lawyers and a bunch of staff and sort of the, we've got the admin staff and then we've got the paralegal staff and then we've got sort of the finance staff and then we've got these amazing lawyers, all of whom I pretty much train. So because I was a nurse and I came from a medical, you know, it's different in the medical world. Like you graduate from medical school and then you become an intern and then you become a resident and then you launch. And I noticed when I was a young lawyer, there was no internship and there was no residency. And it was kind of scary, right? When you got out and you were sort of thrown out there and I had all male, you know, I worked, I called them the bad boys. I worked for the bad boys and they weren't very sympathetic to the plight of a, you know, a baby lawyer. And so I sort of committed myself that all of the lawyers who come into our group are going to be pretty much sit next to me for about a year. And wow. so we really, really, really mentor and train our new lawyers who aren't always young because, you know, people coming out of law school in all different ages. But um, so I think that's something I, I've noticed, you know, sort of I do family law and I've noticed, you know, that a lot of the 
newer lawyers don't get the kind of mentoring and training that they need. And it's, well, as an owner of business, first of all, it's super scary because you're throwing somebody out there doesn't know what they're doing. But more importantly, you know, for our clients, we want to make sure that they get the very best possible representation that they can get. And by having lawyers who have been heavily mentored and trained, and then we're all the time working as a team for that very reason. So I think, um, anyway, that's kind of how I've grown it is we take one or two sort of new lawyers at a time and train them up really intensely. I have a whole lot of questions about this. So, and I think this is fantastic that you said that because I, I coach women law firm owners and growing their business. And one of the big challenges they're having is they're having hiring challenges, but they're also feeling like, you know, I invest in the training of this person and then they, they leave. And I think one of the challenges that people have is maybe they're not spending enough time training and training closely enough and working closely enough with them to develop that relationship. So they think they're training by saying, here's how we do things now go to it. And maybe they're, maybe that's why they're losing people. But have you had the experience where you invest a lot in training someone and then they've left you shortly after you, they kind of passed their, their training period to go work someplace else. And how have you handled that? Well, only, yeah, we've, we've had people, well, it's family law, right? So either you love it or you hate it. And so it's not, you know, it's not unusual for us to get somebody in there who thinks they're super enthusiastic and they've always wanted to be a family law lawyer. And then they're dealing with people who are falling apart and, you know, losing their home and their children. And it's really emotional. And circling back to this nurse thing, because I was a nurse before I was a lawyer, I'm pretty comfortable with people in crisis because that's pretty much, I was a labor and delivery nurse. So you're dealing wow. with women in crisis every single day. So I'm pretty comfortable with that. And I'm pretty good at mentoring, you know, my team of how to be comfortable with people who have in a really hugely emotional state, but it's not for everybody. So I would say that of the people that have sort of come and gone, I don't, I can't think of one who's gone to another family law firm. I can, you know, we've had some that have just said, I'm going to go do estate planning, or I'm going to go be commercial litigate, like, they just want out of the crazy emotional part of it. Um, but so, yeah, but they kind of figure that out and, and it becomes kind of clear as you're going along, like they're, they're not, you know, really relating to the clients as well and stuff. So, um, yeah, we invest a lot in our people, but that's kind of part of the business model because I figure a certain number of people you're going to get in there, they're not all going to stay, but the ones who it clicks and they find that they're in the right place for them. We've never had any of those leave that I can one move to Texas, but other than that, no. Mm -mm. Yeah. See that, that is really interesting that you said that because I do think that's where a lot of uh, law firm owners who struggle to grow because they struggle to hire people is this feeling of, well, I hire this person, they didn't work out. And now I resent it because I spent all this money and they left. And so they struggle to hire sort of the next person. How did you kind of get over that? Because I know nursing is totally different from being a lawyer and owning your own law firm. So how did you sort of get over that in the beginning to give yourself permission to hire and grow your team? First of all, I would say nursing and lawyering isn't all that different, which is, sounds <laughs> weird, but because I'm a law that I practice, I mean, nursing, you learn about how to make decisions quickly. You learn how to triage things. You learn how to deal with high emotions. You learn how to, it's a really, it's a thought process. So it's a way of thinking of, you know, let's go and here's a situation. Yeah. What do we have to do? It's not all that different. It's really good training for lawyering. I've got to say, and in yeah. my particular kind of lawyering, just as an aside, um, I was a labor and delivery nurse, and that's a time when a woman comes in to you and they're like scared and out of control and they don't know what's going on and you're trying to help them stay calm and go through this delivery process, not too dissimilar from what happens in family law. People come yeah. in hysterical, they don't know what's going on, they're terrified, and you're like calming them down and getting them through a process. When you're in labor and delivery, you know at the end of it, you're going to have a baby, right? And so you can kind of hold it together. In family law, what they don't know is that they're going to have this great new life that I can see because I've seen it so often. They don't always see that. So I'm sort of midwifing or doula-ing a new life for a person. So the nursing and the family law and the nursing and the law kind of does, oddly enough, go together. But back to your question about how it works for business is I think you have to this sounds kind of flaky, but you kind of have to love people up because they're scared. The new lawyers are scared. They don't know 
you know, it's scary when you get it because we all know they don't teach you anything in law school that really has anything to do with practicing law, right? So you're coming out and you're into a situation where you really want to do a good job and you really want to be proud of your work, but you need someone to really lift you up and to make you feel like you matter and you're important and you have a contribution to make. And so if you build a relationship with your team in a way that they know that you're investing in them because you know, they know that I want them to be a great lawyer and they know that I have a lot to teach them. And then they know that if they stick with me and us, that we're going to continue to invest in them. So it's not like you invest in them for three months and then send them out and say, okay, we want you to bill 160 hours a month and you're on your own. And, you know, if your kid gets sick, you can't, you know, go to the doctor. And, you know, I'm on some of these Facebook pages with the women lawyers. I don't remember what they're all called, but some of those places, they're awful. Like your kid is sick and you can't go take care of your sick kid in the hospital because some partner wants you to be, you know, arguing a motion, which anyway, so we have a more family friendly operation. And I think that's part of why people stick around. I going back to when you started your firm and you were, did you start it as a solo? Had you, you'd already been practicing a while in another area. Well, I started off as a medical malpractice lawyer, which is how the book ended up happening. And then I didn't like, you could tell by reading this book, right? I hate insurance companies and I hated dealing with the insurance adjusters. And it just, it was like me and people against sort of big business over here. And so I kind of liked family law because it's me and people versus someone else and people. And there's a way to negotiate a deal between people. So I left MedMal and I started my own MedMal firm. And then I sort of gradually took on family law for just because I had a friend who said, you should try family law. And I thought he was crazy and I did, and I liked it. So I started off with one partner and then she left. And then I was on my own for a while and then with a paralegal and then just kind of grew from there. So how did you, did you have kind of going back to what I was asking before, did you have any sort of trepidation around hiring other lawyers or expanding did you have situations where people you hired people and then they left and then you were like, Oh my gosh, I, I can't do this. Or I'm going to do this. Or did it always sort of go smoothly for you? And, and it was not anything you had any sort of fear around hiring other lawyers. Never had any fear around it. Cause the work was always there. My, it was always, they used to laugh at me, you know, the new lawyers back when I was first starting, because then my first who became my partner and just recently joined the bench. And so she just left her name's Monica Carey. Um, when she came, it was like, well, why don't you come tomorrow and just sit over there and I'll give you some work and we'll see how it goes. And then the end of the day, she did all this stuff. And I go, well, you should come back tomorrow and let's see how it goes. And it sort of became this, she was just, she would laugh. She'd just like, and then someone else, you know, and then a few years later, someone else showed up and I can't quite remember. We just got busy and we sort of hired someone on a contract and I said, let's just see how it goes. And if you're here and there's work. And so it was always this it was very organic. It was very like, and I wasn't probably smart enough to like have a business plan or any, it was more like a vision. Like I wanted to build a, an organization where the people felt appreciated because I'd been in one of those law firms where it wasn't that way. Right. So I, I knew what I didn't want. And so I just wanted to build this um, organization where people would feel appreciated and, and, and coached and mentored and it just sort of attracted people. So it was very, um, everything that a business person in an MBA, my brother's an MBA and he's like, you're doing this all wrong. And I'm like, um, well, and obviously you, you did know what you were doing because here you are, you know, quarter of a century later, right. Uh, in the novel. So the novel is called the complication and it is a, uh, an, a, a female attorney, a heroine of the, the protagonist in the book. And, uh, she, I, I'm not going to give spoilers for the whole book, but I'll just say that she winds up uh, leaving where she is and starting her own law firm. And she's having this conversation with her mother about starting her own law firm. Can I do it? Should I do it? You know, for this particular reason. And I thought it was uh, very interesting as somebody who works with um, women law firm owners as they're starting and growing and, and expanding their law firm to get to a million dollars the conversations, the fears that are, that she's expressing in the book are a lot of the fears and conversations that I have with a lot of women lawyers. And I, of course, when I was reading, I was like, I have to ask her, was this kind of 
uh, a reflection of what your thought process when you were thinking about starting your own firm, you know, um, going from MedMal then to starting your own MedMal firm. Did you kind of go through this process in your own mind? Some of the things that you discuss in the book? That's a really funny question. I never thought about that. Um, it's probably what I should have thought about. <laughs> you know, I yeah. don't think I was just like, when I started, it was day to day. And I had just had, I'm sort of, I'm a, I subscribe to this crazy sort of woo-woo theory of make a vision and it'll happen. So I would every day say what I wanted to happen and what I saw happening and where I wanted to go. And I was very visionary about it all, but I didn't really attend to the details. It just, I just trusted that they were somehow going to work out and they really did. So, you know, that whole, I don't know if you read books like, you know, the secret or the answer or Deepak yeah, Chopra. Yeah, law of attraction, all the law of attraction well, stuff. Yeah. It totally, I'm here to say, I've built a very, very successful business following, like I used to read those books every night, like Napoleon Hill or John Osseroff. Like I didn't do any of the, those like I'm saying my MBA brother, I didn't do the business plan and the budgeting and the figure. I'm like, come on over. We'll see if there's any work, you know, clients are going to pay. If they don't pay, I'm going to let go of them. I'm not going to worry about it. I'm not going to chase around people that aren't paying. And I'm going to assume that the right people are going to show up at the right. And then they do. So I know it sounds yeah. kind of weird, but it works for me. Oh, good, good. I actually, um, and the same in that I, I read a lot of that and sort of, and when I teach, I'm teaching a lot of times about law of attraction. I'm teaching a hiring workshop right now. And we started out the first session was about clearing negative energy around hiring because a lot yeah. of people have had bad experiences. And I said, we have to shift this energy. The first step is we have to shift the energy around hiring. You have to stop telling the same stories about these bad things that went wrong. That time you hired somebody and they quit, whatever. You have to kind of shift your focus. Let's clean all that negative energy up. Let's cut it. Let's release it. And then let's shift into the kind of energy that we want to have about this. So what can we say and that will lighten up these things? How can we reframe these stories and, and talk about them in different ways? So I totally agree with you on the law of attraction. It's one of those things, what believes in you, whether you believe in it or not, you know, what we put out there is, is what we, And if you spend all your time ruminating on the hires that didn't work out or the, what you're just talking about, I have these bad ideas about negative, about hires that didn't work. If you're putting all your attention on that, what are you going to get? You're going to get more people like that. So let it go. Really think about, I mean, and we do this even in our, we have a month, a weekly huddle. And if it feels like we're not getting the clients, the quality, I'll just go around the zoom. Now it's on the zoom, you know? Um, you know, and there's like 25 of us on this. And I'm like, tell me the qualities of the clients that you want. Tell me your favorite client. Tell me what you love about him or her and what kind of qualities are we looking to attract? And we'll go around 25 people and everybody will say, you know, so you just want to get the energy going in the direction of the kind of clients you want and, you know, the kind of work that you want. And if we're looking to hire somebody, we'll do the 25 people in the huddle and we'll say, we want somebody who's smart and somebody who's, you know, family focused and somebody who's a good team member will go through all the qualities, kind of like writing your ad, your, um, yeah, you put on indeed or something, but everybody in the firm will part right down to the, everybody like receptionist and the business manager. And we'll talk about the qualities we're looking for in our new lawyer. And then we'll create an ad that goes on wherever they put those ads, I think indeed or something. And, and then people respond to it because it's not a typical, we're looking for somebody who's got three years of experience and can write a brief and, you know, can build some number of hours. It's like, we want somebody who's got a good, you know, prioritizes their family. And we want somebody who, you know, wants to be on a team and our ads don't look like the kind of ad you'd see for a law firm. It's so interesting. Um, yeah. Cause that's, um, I'm going through this five day challenge right now and we're about to jump into sort of the magnetic funnel piece of it, which is how do you set up, how do you write your ads and how do you, where do you put them and what else do you do? Because so many people are challenged with the idea of that they're struggling to get people to even apply for jobs. And when they do, they're not a good fit and all of that. And, and so I kind of came up with this presentation, how to hire when no one wants to work. And the idea is that, you know, that we really have to change our energy and thoughts around it. And we also may have to do things a little differently than we normally, we can't just get away with, writing down the ad, like what you're talking about. I need somebody with X years of experience, blah, blah, blah. And putting that out there, that there is a, a, an attraction piece of it. 
that we need to be putting out there and saying, this is really who we're looking for. And so for us, a lot of that revolves around core values. So what do we value? So a lot of what you're talking about with your group is kind of, what is it that we really value? What is it we're really looking for here? Not just, you know, the demographics, but like the psychographics and the, the, what core values do they have that they need to align with to fit in here, right? So I, I love that you shared that. And, um, and I also, I like it that this is kind of developed organically and with a little bit of woo because that's wonderful, you know? Um, have you always been that way or is this something that somewhere along the line, somebody said, you know, kind of threw this idea out at you and, and you were like, huh, I need to change the way I think something you were, I was, I'm kind of, you know, I, I'm old. So I grew up in the sort of, you know, like the, when I was sort of just going to college, I started getting into sort of personal growth stuff, which is a little bit sounds, you know, weird now, but I learned really early on that, you know, you kind of put out there what you want and figure out a way to make it happen. And you start small because like, sometimes it's just you want, I don't know, something simple, like to pass a test or to, you know, get a new car or, you know, something easy. And then you sort of grow over time. And then it's like, build a law firm or build this nonprofit. Like, I don't know how to build, I don't know anything about business. I don't know anything about building a law firm. Like if you were going to say, go teach, build a law firm, I'd like, you know, go put it out there what you want and it'll all happen there. And it's funny because I have a um, a friend and he's a teacher, a professor or something at Seattle University Law School. And he teaches a class on how to, how to build, how to have a law firm or, you know, like the business part of it. And at the last class of the year, he invites me and a couple of other guys who come and talk about how it's really like to have a law firm. And they're, the one guy is all, you got to have a spreadsheet and you got to have a budget and you got to be, it's all fear-based. You know, it's all like, and if it doesn't work, then this is going to be a crisis and don't hire anybody because they might not be trustworthy. And then I'm like, no, you got to have a vision. <laughs> sort of like, you, it's you show up with the like ring of daisies around your head going, man, cool. You just got to be at peace with yourself. <laughs> yeah. Find your people. Yeah. Uh, well, I do think, you know, you definitely have built this law firm sort of playing on your strengths because you know that you, so it's a know thyself, you know, you're not the person who's going to be into spreadsheets. So, but you can bring who you are to it and create the kind of law firm that you wanted and you desired based around your strengths, you know, because you are somebody who apparently um, loves people and loves to help people like in crisis. And so that's, a, that's not, everybody's like that. There are a lot of people out there who aren't like that. They're not good in a crisis. My best friend is a labor and delivery nurse. And All so right. I have a sense of, you know, from her, what that's like, and I can, I'm just like, no, I could never do that. That just would not be me, but she is so, you know, just calm in a crisis and has that sort of, you know, personality and loves it and loves the whole process of helping women get birth and the new life and all that kind of thing. And, uh, you know, we, we have to, to, all we can do is really go with our strengths. And I think people who sort of try to swim against that and become something they are not are the ones who really sort of struggle with that because there are always people out there who can help you figure out the spreadsheets. Right. Um, and that's like, I would say another thing that I've seen a lot of people trying to start a business like, Oh, I don't want to, you know, I'm going to save money. I'm not going to hire a bookkeeper and do it myself. And I'm like, are you crazy? Like just pay people and you borrow money, like get a loan and pay a bookkeeper. And you can like, you're going to succeed based on being really, really good at your craft. I'm not going to succeed by figuring out how to make an Excel spreadsheet of, you know, my rent and yeah. my malpractice insurance. Not like that's not, that's not a good use of my time. And there's really smart people who are very delighted and happy to do the stuff that I can't stand doing. And they want to, you know, like you're looking, you're not trying to hire people like you, you're trying to hire people like who can do the things that you can't do and don't be afraid to hire them. Cause once you do that, you're freed up to do what's really good. And I think people who are watching this, if you're all lawyers, you're probably really good at lawyering. And that's why you want to have a firm because you're really, really good at it. And you want to be able to share that with your potential clients. So don't be, that's my advice. Like don't be spending your time trying to figure out how to open bank. We got to open a bank account, but how to do books and how to manage yeah. payroll and pay your taxes. Yeah. I, I agree. I agree. I, it's interesting because you said borrow money. And I think that we don't talk about this enough. People who are starting their firm. So 
you know, a lot of people bootstrap to start their firms. There are many people who say, I want a law firm and they bootstrap. And there are people who get sort of forced into opening their own law firm because they can't find the job they want. And they bootstrap and have, because we've been taught in our society that debt is bad, meaning consumer debt, credit card debt, debt is bad. Oftentimes there is a reluctance. And I find this a lot with women, having worked with men and women, that women are reluctant oftentimes to invest in their business because somehow they feel that that's, that they don't, I don't know, have a right to do that. They're taking away from their family to do that, or they're not supposed to borrow money. What has been your experience? What are your thoughts on that in terms of borrowing money to grow your business? Well, let's back up a couple of steps and talk about what money is. Money is just energy and money circulates. And the whole purpose of, to me, of money is to take it in and to let it go. And so debt is just, that's just part of the circulation. Like you're taking money from this place and you're putting it over here and then people are going to pay you. And it's, if you think of it, like take off all the charge of money being this important thing that really matters a lot and just think of it as energy. So if I need money, I'm going to borrow it because it feeds my need to, to back to being this really, you know, I'm going to say I'm a great lawyer, but you're good. You know, you want to do your craft in order mm-hmm. to do your craft. You're going to have to circulate the money around, circulate the energy and don't be afraid to give it away. Don't be afraid to pay people with it. Don't be afraid to borrow it because when you borrow it, then it just stimulates because it's for a purpose. You're not borrowing money to like go on a trip to Hawaii or something. You're borrowing money to invest in yourself because you believe in yourself. So, and once you start doing your very best work because you've got the money or the, you know, the little bit of the energy that you need to be able to do your work, then people start paying you because you, this sort of is over here saying, this is got to be paid back. Then that stimulates the people that are paying you. And then you've got to pay other people. But I think a lot of people think of money. And I think we were all raised this way. Like money is some scary thing that has, you know, it's really, it's really not that scary. It's just, it's something that moves around. It's a tool. It's a resource, a tool. Yeah. Yeah. And you don't be afraid of it. Just, you know, you, if somebody doesn't pay you, let it go because there's someone else that will pay you. But if you focus all your time and this person won't pay you, or if you take debt and you're afraid you can't pay it back and all your energy is going, I'm afraid I can't pay my debt back. Then guess what? You're not going to get, it's not going to start coming in over here because this is a block. Right. Right. So you need to borrow it knowing that everything's going to work out, right? This, I think of it in terms of expanded capacity. So you, you yeah. to achieve wealth or achieve the law firm that you want to achieve or whatever great accomplishment, you have to expand your capacity for it, like your mental and emotional capacity for it. I need to be able to hold this, you know, this vision that I have. And we grow into it sometimes. We grow into that capacity. But then that also is going to help us expand the resource capacity that we need right? Mm-hmm. So that you're talking about money is a resource. People mm-hmm. are a resource. So all of these time is a resource. All of these resources that we have, we're wanting to grow our resources because people with more resources have more options, right? So mm-hmm. there's an expansion of your mind though, that has to happen to be able to hold these vast resources because you, if you aren't mentally there, like you said, you're going to be going, oh my God, I can't pay this debt back. Or, oh my God, I can't hire somebody because I'm scared. They're going to be, I'm going to make a mistake and hire the wrong person. And then it'll be all be over, right? So all of that is about expanding your mind and saying, I can do this. If, if they can do it, I can do it. If other people can do it, I can do it. I'm watching, I'm looking, you know, what if, what if, what else is possible? Those kinds of things, right? So I, I love that sort of, you, you and I are on the same page with that philosophy. I love it. I want to, before we run out of time, I want to talk about your uh, civil survival project. And uh, because that's something else too, that was a, that started out small and then grew, the vision expanded and it became its own sort of thing and a very important thing for a lot of people's lives. So why don't you tell us about it, how it started out, what it is, how it started out and where it ended up? Well, so a long time ago, I was sort of, in a point in my career where I thought it was time for me to think a little bit more about giving back. And so I ended up writing this series of books that taught sort of basic legal survival skills to marginalized people who were, you know, just ordinary people who didn't have access to lawyers. And 
which is still kind of out there, but anyway, I ended up teaching. So it was like how to rent an apartment and how to be a good employee and child divorce and criminal law and stuff. I ended up just through circumstances teaching it to a group of people that had just come out of prison. And they were like taking notes. It's like we were talking about how to rent an apartment and how to be a good, it was like employment law and landlord tenant law and about how to do this. And they would, you know, take all these notes and stuff. And then finally one of them said, this is so helpful. And thank you so much for helping us with this. So there's just one problem. And I said, what's that? And they said, we can't get a job and we can't get a place to live because we're all felons. Hey, sorry to interrupt. We'll get back to the episode in just a few seconds. While I have your attention, I wanted to be sure that you know about the Wealthy Woman Lawyer League. If you are a woman law firm owner on a mission to grow your law firm business into a wealth generating machine without working yourself into the ground to do it, then I invite you to check out the league. League members meet each week to discuss law firm growth strategy, share practical tips and advice, and support each other in their growth journey. Plus, I'm there to help guide the conversation and provide laser coaching support. Also, you have access to my exclusive million-dollar law firm growth framework to learn everything you need to know to transform your solo or small law firm into a booming, thriving, profitable, and sustainable law firm business. We cover it all. Mindset, marketing and sales, systems, time, talent, and money mastery, all for one-tenth of what my private coaching clients pay to work with me. Get one additional client and you'll quickly make back your investment. Of course, we deliver a whole lot more than one new client. Be sure to check out all the details, including success stories from other women law firm owners just like you at www.wealthywomanlawyer.com slash league. And now back to our show. And I was like, what? Because I'm the privileged white lady. Like, I didn't know that. I'm like, what are you talking about? And they're like, well, you know, when we go to rent an apartment or apply for a job, they ask us, you know, your criminal background record. And then we have to say that. And then we can't get a job. And I'm like, this is messed up. And then they started to tell me these unbelievably heart-wrenching stories about one guy, this big black guy was sitting in my office telling me the scariest day he ever had. And he was a gang member and he was in prison for, I don't know, 15 years. And he said, the scariest night I ever had was the day I got out of prison because I didn't know what to do. Like I was just thrown out, you know, with a bus pass and $20 and I had no place to go. And now I've tried to find a job and I can't find a job anyway. So after listening to all these stories and stuff, I'm like, well, you know, these are laws that are holding you back. And I'm a lawyer and I know that we can change laws, but there's no way that this particular demographic of people could necessarily get access to the policymakers. And so I came up with this idea that after I got to know all these new friends and heard their very sad stories of, you know, how scared they were and how traumatized they were, first of all, being in prison. First of all, they were traumatized before they got to prison, which is what led them to whatever, you know, behavior they did that got them in prison. And then they're out here traumatized. And I'm like, you know, if our legislators could hear directly the stories of these new friends of mine, they would not want the laws to be so oppressive to them. So I got this idea that we should put together workshops where I would bring in formerly incarcerated people and we'd talk about how to just how to lobby, really, how to change laws, like how to change policy. We did, you know, how does a bill become a law? We did, uh, we learned about organizing, we learned about, you know, civil rights and marriage equality. And I was trying to teach them about how the power of organizing. And in our country, there's a hundred million people, one out of four people in our country has a criminal something on their record that impairs their ability to get housing and jobs which is an astonishing, I have no idea. So I put together this workshop and the first workshop we had like 75 people had just come out of prison at some point in their life. And then we learned all about how to change policy. And then in the afternoon we had legislators come in and then we had our people practice telling their stories to the legislators and invariably they'd cry and go, oh my God, I had no idea. And so it just sort of grew and it became this huge community of people that I would never have known before who were just passionate about wanting to make their lives better because they made a mistake, they're home, and they just want to get a job and a place to live and be a, you know, participating member of the community. So it started to grow. And then there's this young woman named Tara Simmons, who was a law student when I first met her, and she was formerly incarcerated. And oddly enough, she's also a nurse, so we have a lot in common. She went to prison, she came out, she went to law school, and she wanted to sort of run, you know, get involved in this organization. So long story short, I mentored her and somewhere along the line after a couple of years and, and talk about money, I paid all these people's salary. Like I started this thing and here's what I learned. I learned that 
you know, for us privileged white ladies, if someone says, hey, can you volunteer and do something? We say, sure. Well, this demographic, you say, can you volunteer? And we're going to go to the legislature. They're like, well, who's going to pay for my gas? And what if we have to get lunch? And, you know, I can't take time off work. And so they can't, they, they need to be paid for stuff. So I just started paying them. And then it started becoming an organization. So I hired a couple of people full-time to work for the organization that didn't even, it wasn't a, I didn't even smart enough to make it into a nonprofit. I just hired because I was paying them because I'm like, this is important work. So I'm paying people full-time salaries to go and organize this group of people that needed help with policy and stuff. And ultimately it became really clear to me that it really wasn't my work to do because it needs to be run by people who are impacted by the criminal legal system. And so I turned it over pretty quickly to Tara and now it's run, and I'm the president of the board now, but it's run completely by people, almost everybody in leadership there is formerly incarcerated and they mentor each other. There's a couple of lawyers and stuff who aren't formerly incarcerated, but it's a group of people that are, um, and they're running it now and, and talk about money and energy. It's like, that didn't make any sense. You know, my MBA brother was like, what the hell are you, what are you doing? You're like paying people. There's no income coming in. This is not a for profit. I'm like, no, it turned into a nonprofit ultimately. But anyway, the point is that there's a whole demographic of people that are, it's like women coming out of prison, listen to this, they come out of prison and they're reunited with their children and then they can't volunteer at their kid's school. So they can't bring cupcakes to their second grader's birthday party at school. And if ever there was a child who needs their mother to be supporting them in their school environment, it's a kid whose mother has been taken away from them and put in the criminal system. And then they come out and the schools have all these rules and about the mothers can't come in. They can't. My friend Tara Simmons, who is now the executive director of civil survival, she is a lawyer and she just got elected to our state legislature. She's representative Simmons now. She can't volunteer in her kid's high school. Wow. Isn't that insane? That is. So there's all these. So anyway, to make a long story short, they started changing laws. They've changed like five or six, changed all kinds of laws about how fines are imposed on people who have been in prison. They got civil survival worked with another couple of organizations to get the right to vote for formerly incarcerated people in our state. Like they are changing the laws and the rules around, you know, how to make life better for people who are coming out of prison. And this wasn't anything I was even remotely interested in. I knew nothing about this. It's just sort of sort of circumstantial that I ended up teaching this to this group of people. But now I was thinking about that this morning. I've got so many friends who've been in prison. I got friends who have been in prison for murder and for all kinds of drugs. And, and they're all, you know, trying to make their, and a lot of them come out and really want to work with the youth in the community. So there's sort of a ripple effect because they come out and we help them get a lot of their rights back and get their fines canceled and free them up so that they can live their best life. And now they're running organizations for youth all across sort of the Seattle area. And it's really, really pretty inspiring. Wow. Wow. And and it's interesting because you, you were practicing MedMal and then you became a family lawyer and then really you got into this area that would have been, it seemed like a natural fit for somebody who's in defense or criminal defense work. Right. No, nothing, but, but nothing. I've kind of got sort of from your own experience and what inspired you to sort of write the books to begin with? I mean, was there something, you know, it, was, it wasn't for criminal. It was more like, you know, it was like being a lawyer and realizing how little access people had to like, we have the way our society is set up is we've got the rules of the game, right? And nobody knows the rules of the game. So we've got this, it's like playing Monopoly, but nobody tells you the rules because regular average Joe citizen doesn't know the rules. But if you break one of the rules, you find out very quickly that you have broken a rule, whether it's, you know, building a fence on your neighbor's property or not paying an employee or, you know, whatever you've done wrong, they're going to come right down on you. But if we don't tell people what the rules are, it's kind of not fair to say, you know, we have a game and it's like, you know, the goal is life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, but we're not going to tell you any of the rules until you break them. And then, oh, we're going to charge you three or $400 an hour to talk to someone about how to fix what you did that you didn't know that you shouldn't have done. And I think everybody who's a lawyer probably feels that way on some level. Like people come in and you're like, you did what? And then you think for a moment and think, well, how would you not know? Yeah. That was the thing for me. That was that I've always said to people, um, I'm so grateful for my law school education because I didn't know what I didn't know. You, exactly. you don't understand like all the different levels of governance 
and rules that go on because it's not just it's not just our laws in the justice system. It's also all these administrative rules and agencies and laws and rules and things like that that we have set up and other people have set up all around us and for us and against us and all of those things. Right. So, right. And, and you don't realize until you start, like you buy property and then you're paying property taxes and then you've got, you know, you work and then you got to pay income tax. And there's all of these things that you don't, you don't realize how those are laws, even though they're not in the justice system. Right. And um, so it really Open, you know, the, I always say, I mean, like, I think a legal education is never wasted because it just exactly. opens your eyes. Even if you don't go practice as an attorney, it just opens your eyes to the complexities that our society has developed over time and how it impacts people in different ways, you know? So you- And then want, we don't teach anybody about them, right? No, no, That's no. Unless you can right? afford to go to law school, you don't learn about them. Right? Or you can I mean, afford I, to pay someone 400 bucks an hour to tell you what a stupid thing you just did. So, well, I graduated, I didn't graduate from law school until I was 40. So like the first half of my life, I had no, I was like happy, <laughs> you know, whatever in the marketing world thinking I wasn't happy. And then I was like, no, no, you have no idea. And <laughs> when I went through law school, um, you're, um, you recently won an award. You won an award so recently that between the time we scheduled this and today you've won this award. <laughs> So why don't you tell us about the award? What is it? It's a, I, I don't remember the name of it because it's long. <laughs> so tell us the name of well, it. I've again. never heard of it before either. It makes you feel any better. It's called the Sally, Sally Peace, Sally Savage Award for Leadership and Philanthropy from the Washington State Bar Association. So they gave me this award because of the work in civil survival. And I, I just feel like for them to acknowledge that the people that civil survival serves are worthy of like, it's not me, right? It's like, there's a whole demographic of ripple effect. There's a whole demographic of people that have been really forgotten by our society. And like, who wants to really care about somebody who's been in prison, really, honestly. So I think it was really, I was very touched that they realized that this particular demographic of people can really be lifted up and really be, their lives can be made so much better. Um, just by changing some policies and, you know, and now we're doing actually Tara's now got a legal clinic going there. So we do expungements and we do um, different um, vacating records and, you know, things to clean up people's record because what I didn't know, here's a statistic, people who are out of prison for seven years are no more likely to commit a crime than anybody else. Yet we, you know, I've got friends been out of prison for 20 years and they still have to put, they can't get an apartment. I have a friend who's a professor of law at Georgetown who did 12 years in prison for armed bank robbery, came out, went to law school, clerked for a federal court judge, is now a professor of law at Georgetown, and he couldn't rent an apartment in DC because he had a criminal record. Wow. And he'd been out for, I don't know how long, but the point is, and one of my friends told me, she goes, when the judge sentenced me, he sentenced me he didn't sentence me to a lifetime of, of unemployment and homelessness. I did my time. I, you know, went to prison and I made amends for what I did wrong. And, but doesn't, it's not fair that then once you're out the rest of your life, you can't get a job. You can't get a place to live. You can't volunteer in kids school. You can't, there's a million jobs like hair salon and an astonishing number of jobs that you can't get if you've ever been in prison. So civil survival is going about cleaning up all of those, um, things that hold people back. Right. Right. I, I think what, I think what's so wonderful is that it, you, you've identified too how there's a whole demographic that doesn't have an act, doesn't, it's, it's the powerlessness, not having access to policymakers and awareness, creating awareness for policymakers, lawmakers, you know what I mean? You know, it happened. The hypotheses worked. So I had this idea that if my my people, you know, my my friends who've been in prison really got to know their policy makers. Like my people now know their legislator to the point where when they see her in Safeway, they give a hug and they, you know, how are you? You know, and Christine, and what about that bill that you're working on? And can we have lunch tomorrow? And so there's this whole group of people that have spent time in prison who are now on a first name basis with their mayor, with their um, city council. One of my friends who was in prison just got elected to the Cameron was the city or county council over in a small town outside of Seattle. And 
They've built relationships to the point where the legislators are calling them on their cell phone. Like we're looking at a bill right now and we want to know how this is going to impact your community. So it totally works. But how did they in their wildest, because the first one you started, it's like, I never thought I would talk to a state senator. And I'm like, she's your neighbor. Like she wants to help you. And so they started to build relationships and you know, now they're friends. Honest, you know. Now, like, if only that could be replicated in all it, it can all be. The it's not that hard. <laughs> yeah. It's totally not that hard. And there's a hundred million people who fall into this category. So if I had a magic wand and all the money in the world, you know, you could you can replicate this. Well, this anywhere. is where your this is where your uh law of attraction and manifestation is gonna come in. You're gonna put it out there, put it out next, there. And next up, um, that's right. And the more people who can put the energy around that, the, the more powerful it will be. Um, before we wrap up today, I do, I do want to, I've mentioned your book a couple of times. I would love for you to tell us kind of like you mentioned, you told me before we started, but I'd like for you to share with everybody sort of how you wound up writing the novel. Cause I know, I know another, a number of women law firm owners who have also written novels and, um, but I'm an avid reader and I'm also a writer but writing a novel is just a whole different thing for me. So I'm curious as to what, uh, how did that come about? What made you decide to do that? I was a malpractice lawyer and I once, it's sort of like the same thing, like what you didn't know, you didn't know. I didn't realize how messed up it is about how we value people's lives in the legal system. So if you're an older person and you die, when I was a malpractice lawyer, I'd represent an older person. They're like, well, they don't have a job. They don't have any general damages. And, you know, they don't have any, you know, they died and they're not worth very much. And I'm like, that is so messed up. Like I come from the medical world where every life, no matter who it is, you know, you bust your ass to save them and to bring them, you know, give them the best that you can give them. And the legal system is like, well, if you're like a 40 year old tech worker, you're worth more than a 80 year old grandpa or something. So that made me crazy. And I wanted to like write articles about it. And then I thought nobody's going to read an article about valuing lives in the human, you know, human lives in the justice system. So I got this idea to write it into a novel. I have another, I've got another one just coming out in April. So the, the story in the first book is about an older guy. And that scene in the first scene in that book came from a real case, by the way, with the aorta and the puncture and everything. Wow. Wow. That really happened. So, and it really happened, that guy died. And then the insurance company kept saying, he's not worth anything. And I'm like, what are you talking? Like, it's bad. I, I feel like it's wrong. So I wanted to bring that to light. So this book is about this older guy who dies and then the protagonist, and she was, he was a special person in her life. And so she's struggling with how the insurance company is trying to devalue him. And she's trying to figure out like, how can you really express the value of a person in the lives of the people that love them? And is that something that our system could be doing differently? So that was what made me want to write it. And then the second book is about a baby who dies, which I know is sad, but it's the same thing. Cause when I was doing malpractice, I did a lot of OB cases. And if a baby is injured in a birth injury and then they live, then you've got this multi-million dollar settlement because they're going to have to have life care for the rest of their life. But if baby's injured in a delivery room accident, your friend's going to like this book is uh, um, injured. And in, my husband's an OBGYN. So he helped me with this. Um, if it's deliver, if it, there's an injury in a delivery room and the baby dies and they're like, well, you can have another baby. So it's not really that valuable. So it's the same, the insurance companies do the same thing on the flip side, you know, like an old person's not worth anything. And so the second book I wrote was because it made me crazy when I did a lot of birth injury cases. If the baby died, they're like, well, what's you, there's no damages. Like what, what do you want? No damages. Wow. No damages. So, I mean, and that's what got me parent, going. And then but yeah, nobody wants to write a book about that. So we had, you know, we had to make yeah. it into like a whole mystery to make it fun and interesting that people would want to engage with. So hopefully it yeah. is. Well, it sounds like you have embarked on kind of a new career as a novelist. So we'll be looking forward to those. Novel, you're going to be like the, the famous novelist now where every year a new novel comes out and we anticipate every November we're getting a new novel from you, right? That's a series. So I'm like, we've got Camille as the protagonist in theory. So the second one is her with a birth injury case. And then the third one, which I'm writing now, of course, now 20 years, because I wrote these 20 years ago, the first time, and then I re revamped them during COVID and published them. But now that I've had like 20 years of life, um, the third one is about women in prison being reunited with their children and the legal wow. issues around that. 
Another thing that's funny about this is when I wrote those books, the first time I was the age of the protagonist, and now I'm the age of her mother. <laughs> so I'm like, You're like when did that be, happen? <laughs> the mother's going to be a more important character as we go along here. Uh, obviously. obviously. Lot, you know, right? Oh, that's fascinating. Amanda, thank you so much for being here and talking with me today. Time has really flown by and we need to end, but tell us how we can, first of all, tell us where we can find the book to buy it for those who have it. And also tell us how we can connect with you if we want to connect with you, find out more information about you and the work you're doing. Um, well, the book's on Amazon, but I'm kind of a supporter of indie bookstores. So there's a website called bookshop.org where you can order books and somehow it, they come out of independent bookstores as opposed to Amazon, not to say anything bad about Amazon, but, and the book is called The Complication. And the second one is called Deliver Them From Evil. And then I have a website for my law firm, which is DuboisLaw.net. I think I know the URL. It is. It is. Um, and then I got a Facebook page. That's I got an author Facebook page. Well, I have three thousand. I almost have three thousand Facebookers on my author page, which cracks me up because I'm not really. I'm learning Facebook as we go, but um, so that's Amanda Dubois author. And then I guess I'm on LinkedIn and all the other regular places. <laughs> well, thanks for sharing. We'll include those in the show notes so that people can just click on them, and we'll include bookshop. It's a bookshop. Bookshop.org. .org. Bookshop.org. Or your local bookstore, but um, I think it's kind of cool to support the independent bookstores, honestly. So, yeah, yeah. So, thanks for being here. We'll include those in the show notes for people who want to reach out and they want to read her novel. I know all the lady lawyers are going to love that. And uh, thanks again for being here. I've had some. And tell your friend, the nurse, I want her feedback. Oh, I will. I absolutely will. She loves to read. She, she and I both love to read a lot. So I'll definitely be recommending that to her. That'll be fun. All right. Thank you. All right. Thanks for having me. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of the Wealthy Woman Lawyer podcast. If you have, we invite you to leave us a review on your preferred podcast platform. The more five-star reviews we have, the more women law firm owners will be able to positively impact. Your thoughts and opinions are so important to us. If you are a woman law firm owner who wants to scale your law firm to a million dollars or more in gross annual revenue and do it in a way that's sustainable and feels good to you, then we invite you to join us in the Wealthy Woman Lawyer League. The League is a community of highly intelligent, goal-oriented, and driven women law firm owners who are excited to support one another on their journeys to becoming wealthy women lawyers. We'll be sharing so much in the League in the coming year including the exclusive million dollar law firm framework that until now I've only shared with my private one-to-one clients. For more information and to join us, go now to www.wealthywomanlawyer.com slash league. That's www.wealthywomanlawyer.com slash league. League is spelled L-E-A-G-U-E. We look forward to seeing you soon in the league.